welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm home this week, uh, but only for this week before heading back out on the road next week for an almost three-week stretch. So it is definitely nice to not be living out of a suitcase or a hotel room. Uh, Now, I know this year has been stressful and hectic again for many of you, and you'd probably welcome a hotel room and a suitcase and a flight anywhere. So I I totally get that. And I understand that you're probably looking forward uh, to some downtime soon. I I do want to say happy Thanksgiving week to those of you in the United States and American citizens living around the world. I'm sure you're all looking forward to some downtime this week, some family time, great food, and of course, a lot of football. Thanksgiving in Canada is in October, of course, and I talked about that back in October. But there are two things that I love most about Thanksgiving in the United States, besides the food, of course. First, it's the first day, not the last day of the long weekend. In Canada, Thanksgiving falls on the second Monday in October, so most people have to work the next day, so the big family gathering the Thanksgiving meal ends up usually being on the Sunday. And the second thing I love about U.S. Thanksgiving is football. You know, now it's more common than it was uh, before, but back when I was growing up, the idea of Thursday football, NFL or college, was such a novelty that, you know, I'd often think about maybe faking being sick so that I could stay home from school and maybe watch the football games on Thanksgiving. But I think my parents were on to me. Black Friday, um, you know, not so much. Uh, Certainly, I love the deals, but I don't love the mayhem that typically ensues. And and hopefully this year, um, like most years or like any year, hopefully you can avoid, you know, the family drama that so often, unfortunately, uh, comes with family gatherings. So fingers crossed for you uh, on that one as well. Fantasy football update. It has not been a good season for me. Um, I haven't really updated you on on my fantasy football, uh, you know, escapades. And of course, I know you're disappointed by that. <laughs> but uh, every decision I've made this year has been wrong. So I really need to adopt the George Costanza do the opposite approach as we wind things down this season. This is a crucial week for my team. I'm three and seven. I'm tied for last place in our league with three other teams. So there's four of us sitting at the bottom of our league. It's a 12-team league. Eight make the playoffs, four do not. A win this week could actually put me into a playoff position, but a loss may solidify my fate as potentially hosting our draft for next year. So if you finish last, you have to host uh, the draft. You know, you have to, the draft has to be at your house. So uh, that's really what I'm trying to avoid. (laughs) Anyway, I'll keep you posted, but it has not been an enjoyable season. I still love fantasy football, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. Thanks again for listening in this week. And as I always say, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And a big thank you to those of you who've been listeners for a while now. I really appreciate all of you. Today, my guest is my friend, Brian Butler. Brian and I discuss his assertion that gifted education needs to be the floor for all learners if we are to achieve real equity in schools. And in Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about common assessments, but not necessarily from the angle you might be thinking. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Brian Butler is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week with a question. What's happened to us? Specifically, when did we become so brazen, so aggressive, so rude, 
so entitled, so self-absorbed. Now, most days I have this constant feeling of disappointment in where we're collectively going as a society, as a people, because I don't see how this ends. I don't recall a time in my 54 years where people seem so emboldened to do whatever they want, to act how they want, to say what they want without fear, without any real accountability. There, there's a collective sense of entitlement that seems to have permeated all four corners of our society. And, and look, I hear the excuses. Oh, Tom, I'm just being honest, or I'm speaking my truth. Uh, I'm just sticking up for myself. And there is, of course, a place for all of those things, but my issue is the manner with which it's being done today. Now, let me be clear about two things. First, this is not coming from any personal experience. Although I've been flying a lot, for example, I have yet to witness any of those viral moments in person that we often see on social media, right, the videos, where there are these intense confrontations over a mask or some sort of procedure or protocol. I haven't seen any of that. I thought about a month ago I was going to see one, uh, but it got diffused rather quickly, so it was a false alarm. So, no, nothing has happened to me. This is really just an observation. Second, there are important moments in our lives where we do need to be honest, we do need to speak truth, and we do need to stand up for ourselves. We all know what those moments are, and we all know what those moments are not. They are definitely not when you're at the frozen yogurt spot and Carly forgot to add your toppings or Wendell gave you a small instead of a medium. That's not the time. Safe to say that's probably not the space for a meltdown of epic proportions. But sadly, that seems to be more common now than one might imagine. What has happened to us? Why now do we feel we have the right to get in someone's face and to just scream at them in ways that are disproportionate to the circumstances. What happened to having a level of civility? There have always been disagreements, always been confrontations, but now more than ever, it seems things go from zero to a hundred in an instant, and there is no filter or sliding scale to govern our reactions in proportion to the situation or circumstance. Maybe it's the pandemic. I'm not sure we all know the true amount of stress and pressure we've all been collectively feeling. Maybe this is our way of releasing it. You know, that stress, anger, fear, and frustration can't be held internally forever, so maybe this is just a byproduct of what the last almost two years have been like and, and where we all need to release it. I don't know, maybe it is. But do we think, then, that it will stop once the pandemic subsides? Like, I'm not sure if COVID is ever going away, but when it subsides, are people going to go back to more civil discourse? Is, is every, or is everyone just too hypnotized by the attention they get, both in person and on social media? It's almost as if we use a little backwards design, right? Little UBD in our social media games. What's the end goal? What's the outcome? Oh, to go viral? Okay, let's backwards map that to make sure we reach that outcome. What has me most discouraged right now is that I don't see how this ends. I'm generally quite an optimistic person, and I know there are many people out there not engaged in this kind of behavior. But if you can't see the increase in this in-your-face obnoxious behavior, then you just aren't paying attention. Maybe it's social media spilling over into our day-to-day -day lives. You can say, do, and be almost anyone you want to on social media with almost zero accountability there. 
So maybe that's given people the impression that they could act in a way on social media or they could act face-to-face as if they're on social media. I don't know. If, if I knew it was temporary, then okay, maybe it's just something we're unfortunately going to go through as a society. But it feels more to me like a permanent shift. It feels more like a permanent shift than an aberration. Some of you might recall last January, I talked a little bit about how we need to rehumanize one another because the dehumanization of others leads us to treating others as avatars, as enemies, not as fellow citizens. All I seem to hear these days is my rights and my rights and my rights. But what about your responsibility? What about your responsibility to contribute to a civil society? It used to be rights and responsibilities, right? With certain rights came certain responsibilities. But today, it feels like we just want to assert our individual rights without any thoughts about the contribution to the greater good. Yes, of course we all have rights, individual rights. But if we put our individual rights above a civil society, then what? What's the end game? What does it ultimately lead us to? Do we all end up just sitting smugly in our self-righteous echo chambers, loudly proclaiming that if it wasn't for them, things would be a lot better? But what about your contribution? The lack of accountability in some people is astonishing. And I think for some, not, not all, not even many, I'm just saying, for some, manufacturing an identity as a victim seems to bring with it an unfiltered permission to say and do whatever you want. Oh, I'm just speaking my truth to power, Tom. No, you just cut in line at the bank. Maybe save the truth to power assertion for when it's really necessary. People calling you out on your poor behavior is not oppressive. It's accountability. What has happened to us? I mean, sometimes we try to use these little phrases to soften the blow a little bit, right? I'm sure you've heard these. These provide us with a little bit of cover with what we're about to say or do. One of the most popular ones is with all due respect. When you hear that, prepare yourself for the person you're talking to to be disrespectful. With all due respect. Yeah, so what I'm really saying is that you aren't due any respect, so I'm really about to let you have it. With all due respect is a precursor to disrespectful comments. The other popular one, of course, is no offense. Somebody begins a sentence with no offense, you know that you are about to get an offensive comment hurled your way. But today, it actually feels like with all due respect and no offense are actually tame with the way people are so in your face all the time. This recent incident in the United States between U.S. Congressman Paul Gosar and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez leaves me feeling quite pessimistic. And and before you think this is a political uh, thing, it's not, okay? It's not about taking sides. If the political parties were reversed, I'd feel the same way. So this isn't about politics. If you hear this as a biased, one-sided political argument, then you're just confirming the very assertions I'm currently making about how we sort of pick sides and get in your face and, 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 and don't relent. Now, Gosar is an uh, Arizona Republican, and he was censured in the House, House of Representatives, for posting a Photoshopped anime video to social media, and the video showed him appearing to 
actually kill Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Joe Biden. And look, I actually believe in politics and political discourse. I, I think there's a place for lively debate and the debate of ideas. And yes, sometimes politics can be a little rough. But this? I mean, it's not even so much about Representative Gosar as it is the thought behind the video. I mean, the one thing politicians want above all else is to be popular. The one thing they love more than being elected is being re-elected. He had to know this video would be popular, that people would like it, that people would retweet it and make it go viral. Nothing in politics is done haphazardly. Nothing is arbitrary. How did we become so desensitized to one another where otherwise normal people begin stretching or even bursting the limits of civility to feed the most primal instincts in one another. Oh, you don't like me. You don't think like me. So we don't just disagree anymore. You're the enemy, and I'm coming for you by any means necessary. What has happened to us? Look, I, I know I'm generalizing here, and... There are lots of people who don't act this way, but from where I sit, it's getting worse, not better. From where I sit, civility is dying at the hands of the brash and the brazen, whose self-righteousness is clouding their judgment and either purposefully or inadvertently leading to interactions that are chipping away at the core of what makes a society civil. And again, I don't know how it ends. Does anyone really believe there is a political leader, a societal leader, a, a leader of any kind out there that the other side of an issue would ever back down and say, oh, okay, that's someone we could support, or that's someone that makes sense despite our disagreements on topics, on issues or specifics of the pathway forward. Does anybody believe there's someone out there right now that can do that? Neither do I. I don't know, maybe people a lot smarter than me do see someone like that, but I don't see a path forward right now. But that doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't try. All I can control is me, and all you can control is you. So maybe that's all we can do. Maybe what we can do is make sure that we're not contributing to the problem. Make sure that as we interact face-to-face -face or on social media, that even when we disagree, even when we adamantly disagree, that we don't resort to our most primal instincts and devolve into hyperbole about how we disagree. There has to be a place in our society for fierce debate. We have to be able to push each other's thinking, to demand better, and to fight for what's right in our society. We need that. But resorting to personal attacks and demonizing others is not going to win people over. It's only going to alienate people and in the end, it's going to result in exactly what we see today, which is that there is no room for discourse. You either think like me or you're the enemy, and therefore we need not care at all about how your actions or our actions impact you, I should say. Throughout my life, I've always been told to be on guard for groupthink, to be careful not to fall into the echo chambers by blocking out any dissenting voices, but I'm afraid that is exactly where we've ended up. I don't know what the solution is, but as we all know, the first step to solving a problem is admitting there's a problem in the first place.
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me this week for the interview is education speaker, author, and consultant, Brian Butler. Brian works with schools to create collaborative cultures in which every student is seen as having the potential for high intellectual performance. He has worked with schools in the United States, in Canada, and also in Australia. He's a former award-winning principal at Mason Crest Elementary School in Annandale, Virginia. That school received the first ever Dufour Award in 2016 for their work as a professional learning community. Brian is also the co-author of What About Us, the PLC at Work process for grades pre-K to two teams, and he is also a contributing author of the book, It's About Time, Planning Interventions and Extensions in Elementary Schools. I'm excited that Brian is here. Brian, it's been a long time coming, uh, so I want to welcome you to the podcast. Tom, thank you so much. It really has been. You know, we've um, chatted via email and other electronic means, but never met face-to-face, and you know what I'm going to do? I am going to make sure that I actually channel my inner Tom Schimmer today. <laughs> yeah, you got your your hat on. That's for yes, sure. Yes, uh, I, I love see, it. When I see when I see you on, uh, I go to YouTube and, and watch your your podcast, and I see you with your hat on, and I'm like, oh, he makes people feel comfortable. So I'm going to wear my hat today. So we're all yeah, good. Absolutely, we we got our we got our thinking caps on. That's for <laughs> sure. So yeah, we you know we've we've never met. It's an interesting dynamic in 2021 or in the 21st century yeah. where you can know people interact with people and yet have never met face to face, not even on zoom or anything mm-hmm. like that. So this is great. I I'm, I'm really excited. We have a lot of mutual friends and uh, yep. I, I certainly, um, a big fan of your work and, and I'm really glad that we could make this happen. So well, let's, we've got a lot to talk about today, Brian. So let's, let's jump right in. And, and I want to start with one of your most uh, forceful assertions. And, uh, and I, and, and that is that gifted education should be accessible and available to every student that every child should be treated as gifted if we are to achieve true equity in our schools. So I want to start with a simple question. Why is that critical and how do we make that happen? Yeah, well, thanks for the question. I first want to frame this, Tom, through uh, a a bit of a story because I think people have to have context to why I'm so passionate about making sure that gifted education is a floor for every single child. And I mean every single child who walks through our door. I was born in 1965, and when I do my keynote speaks, speeches or, or, or talks, I will show a picture of when I was five years old, and I'll say, you know, this is, you know, 1970, but my story did not start in 1970. My story started in the 1940s. In the 1940s, my dad was in high school, and his parents were sharecroppers. They were just experiencing generational poverty. I mean, you think about it, 1940s, this is less than 100 years after American slavery. My grandfather was born in the 1800s. Uh, and so my, my, you know, my grandparents were just, just trying to make ends meet. And my dad said something radical. He said, I wanted to go to college. He was in high school. He said, I wanna to go to college. And my grandparents said, you know what? We gotta break the cycle of poverty you know, go and and we'll figure it out. There was only one problem. They did not own their land. They didn't control their land. They were still basically, um, for for lack of a better word, slaves to the system. They had no no opportunities. My grandfather had a third grade education. My grandmother had a fifth grade education. And so when the landowner, the person who owned the land that they sharecropped, found out that my, my dad wanted to go to college, he comes to the door 
the home, the home that he owns on that land, one uh, one room house. They have an outhouse where they go to the bathroom. And so he knocks on the door and my grandparents open the door and he says to them, I hear Paul wants to go to college. That's my dad's name. And my grandparents were pretty naive. They're like, yeah, he's going to be the first person in our family to go to college. And the landowner says this. He says, if your son goes to college, you're going to lose your right to sharecrop this land. I'm going to kick you off the land and just closes the door. To make a long story short, um, my grandparents look at each other and say, whatever happens, we, you got to go. So they tell my dad um, he has to go to college. Okay, you got to go. We'll take the hit, whatever happens. And so my dad goes off that first year to college. They had no phones back then. They were very poor. And um, so my dad comes home during a break, uh, during the winter break of college. And he goes back to the farm. And guess what? What do you think happened, Tom? They were gone. They were, they were gone. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, uh, the landowner made good on that promise to remove my grandparents from the farm because my dad was going to go get an education. Again, education, education means op opportunities, access and freedom. And so my, my dad goes on and he becomes a reading teacher. He finishes college. He becomes a reading teacher. Eventually he becomes a principal, but he ended his career as a reading teacher as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a brother and sister, older brother and sister. They did very well in school, very well academically. And then came me. I struggled mightily early on. I struggled to learn how to read fluently. I didn't really like school. I can remember, you know, first, first, first grade in kindergarten, really not liking school. Um, and one of the teachers sat my parents down at a, at a uh, parent teacher conference and said, we want to retain Brian. We don't think he's making the progress that he should be making, especially in reading. And my parents look at each other and they said, no, we got this. What did I tell you my parents were, when my dad was? My dad was a reading teacher. Reading teacher, yeah. I had an interventionist at home. Right. So my parents were able to give me the background knowledge, the experiences. I was eventually able to catch on and I did fine. But this is where my passion comes from because every kid doesn't have a parent as a reading teacher at home. I had a built-in interventionist. Uh, right. And so my passion comes from I want to make sure that every single child has the life that I was able to live. And so I finished college. I was able to get, you know, some advanced degrees. My daughters were able to go to college. My, my daughter now is working on her doctorate. My other daughter is, you know, finished college. And, and again, I'm not saying college. Everybody has to go to college. But what I am saying is everybody should have the opportunity to live the life that they want to live. And they have the freedom to choose what path, whatever that path may be. Uh, and so my my grandparents, two people with a third and fifth grade education, had the foresight to think, okay, if we change our son's life, we're going to change generations. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. It changed yeah. generations. I, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for for that decision, that one decision where they they said, you know, we might have to take the hit, but we know it's going to benefit not just Paul, but his kids and their kids and and, and generations. Yeah. So this idea of making gifted education the floor, I was um, in my, I guess, my 14th year of, of being in education, and I switched districts to a, a, a large district. In this district, um, I had never seen this before. In the, the previous district, 
we identified kids as gifted. Um, they didn't get separated. They, they, you know, we focused on um, certain areas, but they didn't get separated from their class. But when I went to this district um, that I finished my career um, in, when I first got there, I realized that they were separating kids and kids were going to different schools because they get this label. And one of the things that I realized was they weren't any smarter than a lot of the kids who did not get the label. What I realized was that the kid, the parents had um, more resources. I realized that the kids had come to school more advanced than some other kids because they've had opportunities to travel. They had other opportunities um, before they got to school. They sat down with their parents at the dinner table. And, and talk with her, spoke with their parents. They just had so many more experiences to nurture their, 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 their strengths. Mm -hmm. um, but I also found a system that was rigged. I saw, I saw that parents were buying the gifted test from different stores and preparing their kids, which they weren't supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I, I saw teachers talking to our advanced or different advanced academic teachers or gifted teachers, asking them how they could prepare their kids for the test. Mm -hmm. and so that inequity in my mind, I'm like, how, how is this fair? Equity is about fairness. I'm like, how is this fair where your kid is not really gifted? Your kid, it might be more advanced or you might know how to navigate the system or rig the system right. um, to help your child. And I'm not, I'm not, I know that parents want the best for their kids but I knew something was wrong. And when I started to look at who's in the gifted programs, mm -hmm. they're mostly white and Asia. And I'm mm -hmm. like, this is not right. Or, and kids who, kids of means. And so I'm like, this is not right. And so when I went to the, uh, my first school as an assistant principal, I learned about the professional learning community at work model. And mm -hmm. um, I was an assistant principal and I'm like, this just makes sense. But we're sharing kids, sharing practices, we're working collaboratively. And we're looking at uh, individual kids' needs, looking at assessments, formative assessments, to make sure that we're looking at kid by kid, skill by skill. It just made sense to me. Uh, and then I became principal of my own school. And I uh, quickly realized that the system still would not change. The system would not change. Albert Einstein excuse me, once said, no problem can be solved by the level of consciousness that created it, right? And so there's a system in place. And Anthony Muhammad will say um, that people will fight tooth and nail to hold on to a system or protect a system that benefits them or their own kids. Mm -hmm. And so I found a system that was not equitable. But when I went to that first school as a, as a, as a principal, I found that the system wanted to do some band-aiding. And what, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that, Brian? The system wanted to start to try to get more kids of color, more, more kids who are um, language learners, more kids who are, as um, Yvette Jackson says, school dependent, those kids who depend on school to do what, what others' parents do. They were mm -hmm. trying to get more kids into gifted programs. And so when I went to that school, they, they had um, a program where we could identify those other kids for gifted programs. And so my, my thought was, why do I get to pick and choose which one of those kids get to go to the program? Why don't I just say that we all need to have those kind of experiences and to put those tools in our toolkit as a, as a staff to provide those experiences for all students. Um, yeah. And then finally, I went to Mason Crest, where you, you mentioned it earlier, where we talked mm -hmm. about 
our school that won the DeFore Award. And when we op I opened a new school. And when I opened that school, my, my goal was to make sure that parents understood what we were going to do. Mm -hmm. We were going to make sure that we, we learned about the latest research and some of the old research around the brain and that we understood, especially around Carol Dweck's work, but others mm -hmm. as well. And so we started to put tools in our toolkit and we started to be very transparent with parents. This is how we're going to um, use Carol Ann Thomason's work to have a, a, a class on differentiation and mm -hmm. to make sure that we're able to meet the needs of your child. We're going to make sure that um, every single child has an IEP. Doesn't matter if, and again, it's not special ed or it's not general ed, it's just ed. Mm -hmm. And so right. we, we said this, this is what we're going to do. Um, and we also wanted to make sure that the kids understood that, that we were going to teach them the skills. We're going to, you know, teach them about their brain. We're going to teach them um, about a growth mindset and how every kid is special and unique in their own right. Mm -hmm. And I said, we're not going to use a test. Those tests are biased. We're not going to use a test to identify kids who are gifted, although our, our county did have that, that test. But we just said, we're going to make sure that we give kids what they need. Um, mm -hmm. and, and our kids flourished and thrived. And we didn't take kids out of that's that that environment right well what what kid and again I, I know i've gone pretty long but what what kid does not have a gift what kid does not have um something to offer and mm -hmm. my my contention is and i asked parents i asked staff what is a gift a gift is something that we give somebody to make them feel good about themselves a gift is something that we have that's special to us and so what kid are you going to tell doesn't have something that's special to them Mm -hmm. And so we just said, we're going to figure out, we're going to start with strengths. We're going to make sure we have identified strengths and that, that we have kids really believe and expect that they're going to learn at high levels. Yeah. And it the, um, your, your point about the system being rigged, uh, I think is, I, I think we can't, like, we can't blame parents for advocating for their children no, and, and, unless, unless their advocacy is a little bit cynical or diabolical for sure. But, but we know that parents are going to advocate for their children. They're going to work within the system that they work in. But let me, let me ask you this question, Brian, to sure. clarify, um, and maybe just, just briefly sort of help me understand specifically your mindset around this. The National Association for Gifted Children states the following, that giftedness is represented through all racial, ethnic, income levels, and exceptionality groups. And this is the key point. Underrepresentation is widely spread. It's estimated that African-American, Hispanic, uh, Hispanic American, and Native American students are underrepresented by at least 50% in programs for gifted. So just to quickly clarify, yeah. is it your contention that that giftedness in its totality is a bit of a fallacy, that it's just a rigged system set up and it's really not, you know, it's it's not really a real thing? Or do you simply take issue with the way gifted students are identified? And maybe more critically, do you take issue with the significant underrepresentation of non-white students in gifted programs? What just just quickly clarify for listeners, what, yeah. what is the specific, uh, specificity of your contention? My contention is that we're not going to change the system that's benefited kids, a traditional system. And so we need to create our own um, experience for kids. We, okay. we need to. So it's kind of like what Yvette Jackson talk, talks about in terms of equity consciousness. And so what is it that gifted schools or, or gifted programs give to kids that should be for all kids and that, that we need to look in our mirror as, as educators? 
there are certain things that I can I can influence. There are certain things I, I have no control over, but there are mm-hmm. certain practices that we have control over as as the professionals that we know work for all kids and that can help kids learn at high levels. Mm-hmm. And so those are are things that we can put into our toolkit. Building relationships. How hard is that? It is hard, but I'm just saying building relationships is something that is critical to helping kids believe, have the efficacy to think that I can do this. Mm-hmm. Identifying and activating student strengths, making sure that every child knows that they have a strength. The mm-hmm. challenge is, and when we talk about equity, the challenge is many students who come from homes that um, don't have, or you know, sometimes we say that they, they are, are free and reduced they have, they're the, I don't like the label, but they, they, yeah. are, they have free and reduced lunch. Um, they, they, they don't have the opportunities before they get to school. Mm-hmm. Access creates equity. And so think about um, a kid between the ages of birth and five. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's say a cup is an opportunity. My own kids, probably your kids, Tom, were privileged. My own kids had a hundred cups and each one of those cups was an opportunity. And when they turned over that cup, they looked at it and they said, oh, this is something, this is an experience that I get. I'm not really interested in that. I turn over another cup. Oh, I'm interested in that. I'm going to pursue that. That's a passion mm-hmm. of mine. And I'm going to pursue it like the Dickens. And that's, that passion is going to become a strength. And right. eventually I'm going to be able to gift that, some, gift that to somebody because I have something to offer. But think about the, the, the kid who doesn't have those opportunities, is not mm-hmm. born from means between the ages of birth and, and five, they might have three cups to turn over. Mm-hmm. And they might turn over all three and not have anything that they're interested in. And then when that kid gets to school, we say they're slow or, or, or behind. Right. That's not the case. It's just they haven't had the opportunities to actually see if they can find their gift, their passion. Right. I think that's why I talk about access creates equity. We have to create mm-hmm. more opportunities for kids and we can do that within our schools. Right, right. So it, it almost comes down to the idea of that the I know it's not simple, but it's the simple concept of uh, what's easier to change, the system or ourselves. Yeah. And so rather than trying to change a system that, from your perspective, we're never going to change that underrepresentation, or if we are, it's going to take generations. So what we can do is in the immediacy, we can change the environment uh, to be a more strength-based, all students have gifts kind of approach to education. And well, I think that's probably more efficient and, and effective in terms of changing the culture. Yeah. And and I think you said it better than I could, but exactly. And and again, when we talk about underrepresentation, my contention is all kids have gifts. And so we're right. trying to t- change a traditional system with, mm-hmm. and this isn't a traditional process, what I'm talking about. I'm talking mm-hmm. about all means all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we can, and we're going to get to this, I think a little bit later on, but we cannot lose sight that the system in its origin, um, you know, to, to varying degrees in varying places was a system created with also segregation in mind and separation in mind. So I want to, I want to tell tell you, just say one more thing. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I think sometimes we'll talk about equity a little bit more, but I think sometimes people think equity is race. And equity, equity is social economic class. No, I'm saying equity is is fairness. Equity, right. equity is meeting kids as they are, where they are, mm-hmm. and actually looking at where they come from, their frame of reference, as Yvette Jackson says, and mm-hmm. actually making sure that we plan accordingly. And so I want to make sure that people don't think, oh, he's just talking about race. No, I could be talking about 
a school in Iowa, which I, I you know, I have a, a, a colleague who, you know, works as a superintendent in Iowa, and they're predominantly, predominantly a white school district. Right. But when we talk about equity, I'm saying, shouldn't every single child have access instead of us tracking kids, no, no matter who yeah. they are? Right. So that's what I'm talking about. No, and I'm with you on that. I think that the, the concept of segregation runs across many different lines, including yeah. race, but not exclusive to class. race. Yeah. Um, class, yeah, socioeconomic yeah. status, uh, behavioral, all, all the sorts yeah. of thing, ways in which that we've we try to carve out uh, a niche for our kids or or um, you know the system itself. So um, you recently conducted a webinar, and uh, listeners, I'm going to make sure that you uh, get the links to Brian's social media handles at the end because you really do want to check out this webinar. You did a webinar called uh, very much along the lines of cultivating the gifts of all students. You called it yeah. um, so, and we were talking a little bit about labels, um, and gifted being one of the labels. But there are many labels that we use, and you mentioned a few others. Free and reduced lunch are, is often a, a code for you know. Uh, urban yeah. is another code label yeah. that we use. There's lots of different labels we use. Now you. I've heard you say many times, you make the assertion, labels be gone, let's get rid of it. You were just you were just talking about that. Now, we know that some are going to push back and say, hey, listen, Brian, the labels, when we have a diagnosis or we have an identification, it helps us with interventions, it helps us with supplemental funding, you know, so we do need those labels to support learners. So let's, let's dig a, a little bit deeper on that. Yeah. What, what specifically are your issues with labels and, and is there any place for, for any sort of finite use of labels or is it your contention that labels be gone? We don't need them. Let's, let's not focus on them. Yeah. It's not an, it's not an either or I think it's an and um, okay. labels is, is um, Tom Herrick and Ken Williams say in their book, starting a movement labels often begin as identifiers. Um, just to kind of connect how people are incidentally um, different. But then they begin to lower our expectations when we start to use those labels in, in ways where we start to sort kids, sort human beings. And, and so my, my contention is, and just my experience in seeing what we do with labels like minority and low achiever and disadvantage and special ed, over my, 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 my career, I've just seen how people have lowered their expectations once they hear that label. Mm -hmm. I, I say, don't label the kid, label the skill that we're working on that we need to address, right? right. So right. that's the most important thing. And so I could have two kids who we call special ed, they might not have the same need. I may have a kid who's special ed in general, or, or we labeled special ed in general ed, they have the same skill that they need to support with. So I think labels actually kind of put kids in a box and then we teach that label and we don't look look at the kid, kid by kid, skill by skill, and really drill down as you are the assessment expert. We don't drill down seriously and we don't drill down and act, actually see exactly what they need in order for them to be successful, for us yeah. to steer them in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you that the balance, you know, the, the labels are identifiers and they can help, but I think sometimes we get locked into those labels. And I saw that in, in my jurisdiction as well, where, um, especially with behavioral designations and identifiers yeah. where they're supposed to be temporary, yeah. they're supposed to work to help the student learn the social skills, and yet they become a life sentence. And then they become, uh, sort of this category of student that, um, everybody becomes cautious about, we start to have different inferences and, and different nonverbal reactions and all sorts of things surrounding 
uh, those labels and they tend to be triggers for people. And it's unfortunate because it spirals out of control. And next thing you know, we've got someone labeled and locked in a box and we don't really think that, you know, or, or we don't necessarily even attempt to help transition them uh, to learn the social skills or learn the academic skills that would take them out of that label. So can we, can we now, I, you know, <clears throat> this idea of equity, I think this is an important because uh, yeah. listeners, and, and you touched on this a little bit, but I want to give you the opportunity to expand on this because um, equity sort of writ large, the, the, the premise of your webinar was, again, as you've said many times, access creates equity. Yeah. And so the, the, the bigger picture here, uh, we're not really talking about labels. We're not, you know, we're talking about equity. We're, we're talking about the big picture of that. So when it comes to the, the con concept of equity, you let's go back a little bit and maybe drill down a little bit on how you define, because you mentioned that some people define equity along racial lines, socioeconomic lines, but I think listeners would, would appreciate your perspective and how you define this concept of equity. And, and let's drill down on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, what is equity? Again, you know, I, I don't know if anybody or any of your listeners have ever listened to um, Principal Caffelli, but and I and I, I heard him the other day and he kind of said the same thing I just said. He's, you know, equity truly is meeting kids where they are as they are and finding out who they are. Mm -hmm. And so we have to make sure that we have certain, you know, we understand that kids come into the curriculum with different different entry points, but we mm -hmm. should not have lower expectations. We're not dumbing things down. I, I, I hear this a, a lot. People say, well, you're going to dumb it down. No. This is a, the expectation is the expectation. Some kids might need a little extra support or a lot of extra, extra support, but we're going to give it to them and make sure they get there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, in my, my former school, Mason Crest, we said we're going to give kids gifted experience, experiences just like they had in uh, they have in, you know, the quote gifted schools or the advanced academic schools or centers, which they call them in my former district. And so those experiences are like Socratic seminar, document-based questioning, the bonos thinking caps, the engineering and design process, all those experiences that quote kids who have the label get, we're gonna give them. But what we know that when kids have varied needs, it's impossible for one teacher to be able to meet all those needs. And that's mm -hmm. why we have to create, that's another piece of my webinar. We have to make sure that we create this collaborative culture where we take collective responsibility for every single child. So when we come together as a team, Tom, you and I and Nicole and Cassie, we're a team, then we all have our own individual skills, experiences and expertise, and we're gonna share with each other. And so Tom, you're the EL teacher. Cassie is the, the, special, the special ed teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, Nicole is a reading specialist. I'm a classroom teacher. And so we sit down and we say, we're, let's plan Socratic seminar. All right, I know I have some students who are um, English learners. So how are we going to front load that background knowledge, that academic vocabulary before Socratic seminar? I have a student who might have, as a general ed student, I'm going to start using this term, a general ed student who mm -hmm. needs special ed support. They may need something else. They may, may need behavior support. What are we going to do to make sure that they, they have the language, that they are able to have the discourse to be able to participate? And so mm -hmm. that's what I'm talking about in terms of access creates equity. We can actually help kids um, access what traditionally has only been for special for um, students with the label of gifted, but we can't do it in isolation. I read right. Yvette Jackson's book and she talked about how she did it in her classroom, but it didn't translate systemically because right. it was only she in herself, right? And she said mm -hmm. that, you know, once they go on to another grade level, 
who knows? Or yeah. if they're in a different classroom. So that's that's my definition of equity is it should not be an e educational lottery. It should not matter which teacher your child has. They're going to get a very similar experience in terms of having access to those things that were traditionally just for kids who had to mm -hmm. give the label. Right. Now, so you're not you're not saying, though, that a teacher should not. So let's imagine I'm a classroom teacher. I'm listening to you right now, Brian, yeah. and, and I'm. Uh, I, I'm moved by what you're saying, and I'm recognizing that maybe some of my practices in my classroom, let's just say less than favorable, not not egregious, but I'm, I'm realizing now that maybe I'm not as strength-based or as equity-driven as I could be. Mm -hmm. I know you're not saying that they shouldn't do anything. I know that oh, we no. have to try to, I'm right, saying, so we have to, I'm right, so we have to move upward. Yeah, I'm saying teachers, you do all these things. You build, right. build relationships. So, so let me stop you there. Let, I, this is this is my question. What should teachers do, even if the system is not um, changing, or we've got a, a ways to go with the system? What can I do as a classroom teacher? Go ahead, go ahead and sort of share that uh, that piece for them. What can they do? Yeah, and so Yvette Jackson and Carol Ann Tomlinson and Goldie Muhammad. There's so many people talk about you know high operational practices, you know mm -hmm. principles for teaching up you know, high, you know, yield strategies. Yeah. Any teacher can employ these. But what I'm saying is how do we make it? And, and again, if I'm lucky enough, I'm the, I'm the kid who's lucky enough to get into that teacher's classroom, right? boom, I hit the lottery. But what I'm talking about, equity means school-wide. It means it right. should not matter the teacher. And so right. student goal setting is a high yield practice. You know, mm -hmm. finding inspiration in the success of others. And that's something that um, Carol Dweck talks about. And so can we actually help kids see people who look like them so they see it's, success, they see it's possible? Um, mm -hmm. Amplifying student voice, providing enrichment. Enrichment in, in um, Yvette Jackson's, you know, definition is anything that connects a student, anything that, you know, a student makes a student, you know, interested in learning more. And so mm -hmm. many students who come from school dependent homes or, or who are school dependent, they don't get the opportunities that other students get. So how can we in our schools provide enrichment? You know, um, de developing this idea of a growth mindset, teaching about the brain, how it's malleable, how it's not fixed when you're born. And so those practices are things that any teacher can do. And I encourage you to do those. My goal when I'm working with schools or districts is, how can I actually help you operationalize all of these, these practices across the school so there's no educational lottery? So people aren't trying, parents aren't saying, oh, I want to get in that class because right. that teacher does that. Right, right. Well, right. that's what I mean. For sure. And 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 certainly, um, you know, you can see how the labels, as you were talking about earlier, uh, gifted sort of create that that separation and that marginalization and that we don't, we aren't strength-based, that we take a deficiency focus and that we start to look at labels as that, that, um, sentence toward less than and lowering, you know, the expression of the soft bigotry of low expectations yeah. is one that rings in my ear all the time in thinking about the fact that we're not dumbing it down. We're raising the expectation and, and nothing, nothing says, I believe in you and I believe in your potential with like high expectations, like the expectation that you can reach high intellectual performance. Brian, I want to finish up here by folding in the PLC work uh, and the work of collaborative teams, because you are, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the co-author of What About Us? Yeah. Um, and I have a couple of questions here, and I want to start with the first one. Um, and I'm going to frame it this way. 
Um, would you say that schools, not to put words in your mouth, but would you say that schools operate, uh, schools that are operating as PLCs through their collaborative teams, are they better positioned to establish true equity in their schools? And if so, why? Yeah, the, the PLC at work process is, you know, equity personified because if yeah. we're saying, you know, it, it should not matter what teacher your child gets, they're going to have an, an, an opportunity to learn at high levels and be inspired to, to reach high intellectual performance. Then those teams are truly um, kind of like a medical model. It's like, you know, I have five people on my team and your child is at the center of that table. And those five teachers are going to make sure they do everything they, they can to get that student to be successful because mm -hmm. th this team is interdependent. They need each other. They have a team goal and they're going to make sure that we are um, striving for everything that we want for that child as if, as if it were our own child. And so that idea of taking collective responsibility, that collective, collective teacher efficacy, which John Hattie says is like a 1.57 effect size, almost four right. times that of an individual teacher. If we truly believe and have those expectations, of course. And then, you know, looking at the four critical questions of a professional learning community, we have built in this idea of, okay, what happens if my kid already knows it, already knows right. some of the material? We have an extension question. So that team is going to build in extension activities at the beginning of a unit. We're not going to wait to the end of the unit and give kids busy work. We're going to build in extension activities. So kid by kid, they're going to be challenged appropriately. And so that mm -hmm. idea of, you know, equity, I think it personifies equity, Tom, because yeah. it's, it's about the team and it's not about an individual teacher. And that teacher team is going to use assessment to drive whether they intervene and extend. And then they're gonna look at assessment to look at their individual and collective practices. And so right. this cycle of learning just continues and continues and continues mm -hmm. to the point where it just becomes the culture of just the way you do business. Right, and and it also, for me, as I as you're talking there, I'm thinking about the, the collective efficacy and the collective belief that we can make the impact, but also the impact that that collaborative work has on other educators. So if I'm a teacher in on a collaborative team and I, I'm not as clear on how to create equity in my classroom. I have a team oh, yeah. of people working with me to help me. Yeah. Now, here's my follow-up question, because what about us is focused on pre-K to, to second grade yeah. and how we begin that process. So my second question is, why is it so important to begin at those youngest of grade levels? Why is it important to begin this process with pre-K to grade two teams? Well, it's kind of like building a house without a foundation. So pre-K through grade two is the foundation. And so if we can set a solid foundation at pre-K through grades two, then um, the rest of the house is going to be on solid ground. The rest of their mm -hmm. career is going to be on solid ground. The reason why we called the book or we, we titled the book, What About Us? is because when we go, went around the country and we talked about, you know, our, our school, Mason Press, and we talked about, you know, this idea of, you know, making sure that they were a part of the PLC at work process, mm -hmm. most of them would say, we're left alone. We're, right. They focus on the testing grades. Nobody right. bothers us. What about us? We say it should all be about you, about pre-K, kindergarten, mm -hmm. first and second grade. Um, and so they ask, you know, so what does that look like in terms of those critical questions? And how do we answer mm -hmm. those critical questions? We say well, it might look different. Um, the assessments may look different. You might have observations. Um, we might have performance assessments. We might have checklists. We have questioning that we can ask of students. 
but mm -hmm. we're going to actually make sure that we employ the four critical questions at pre-k k one and two and it's not just academics we know that the social emotional piece is is huge that's those social emotional skills and so we're going to make sure that we create essential um targets for those skills we're going to goal set for those skills we we in our book we created these goal cards and it's not just from our book it came from our school we were setting goals at kindergarten and some of our upper grades teachers were like, you know, our kids are too young to set goals. And our kindergarten teacher said, oh, contraire, they mm -hmm. had these goal cards and these learning progressions, progressions on social emotional skills, on their literacy skills, on their math skills. And mm -hmm. so it took all the excuses away from everybody. If we can set goals with kids at pre-K and K, then there's no excuse to not be able to do it anywhere in our school system. Exactly. The fundamentals of the process are the same. Obviously, we have to tailor the experiences for the age and stage of development of, of the students. But at the same time, it's there's no student that's incapable of goal setting and, and going through that process. Uh, Brian, this has been a, a, a wonderful com uh, conversation. I have a bonus question, though, for you, uh, for listeners. Uh, listeners, you might be interested to know that Brian uh, played college basketball at George Washington University from 1983 to 1987. Uh, and Professionally, yeah, a long time ago for sure. Um, and you played professionally in Europe in, in 1987-88. So I, I'm interested to hear about your time as a high-level athlete and, and more relevant to this conversation. Uh, my wondering is what lessons you learned as a, a high-performance athlete that you still lean on today as an educator? Yeah, so when I played basketball, it was all about the team. It doesn't matter how good you are. I mean, I was a very good high school basketball. I was all basketball player. I was all state. When I got to George Washington, which is a division one, every one of my teammates was like an all state basketball player. Mm -hmm. And so somebody had to sit on the bench. Somebody had to, you know, kind of suppress their ego because for, in, for the good of the team, I didn't play very much my first two years. And that was hard because I was a, a very good high school basketball player, but everything was about, making sure that the team was successful. And so we all had our role. And so coming into to, to schools and looking at how schools traditionally have worked, where many teachers have worked in isolation and there's not this focus on the team, it really was foreign to me. But when I started to look at what coaches did when I was a high school um, counselor and what phys ed teachers did and what music educators did and what art teachers did and how they identified essential skills and how they would give constant feedback immediately and how they would intervene and extend. The same thing happens in a practice, Tom. Mm -hmm. I mean, if anybody wants to go to a to learn about the, the, the art of feedback, constant feedback and the art of identifying essential skills and making sure that the team is ready to play on game day, go to a practice. Absolutely. So the, 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 the ups and downs of, of, of being on a team and playing in a game, they're very similar to what you experience in a school. So I think it really prepared me to un help people understand that this is what we need to do to be successful for that child, for that kid, for that individual. We have to actually really sometimes suppress our egos be transparent, be vulnerable, be willing to lean on somebody, be willing, willing to say, I don't know how to teach this very well. Um, can you help me for the sake of that child? And so I think yeah. that's why being on the team was so uh, valuable for me. And it just helps me today in my coaching. You can see, you know, that, that 
you know, involvement in, in athletics certainly uh, is, is clearly why the uh, professional learning community uh, at work process and, and collaborative teams, well, you're right, as a team, we depend on each other, we lean on each other. And, and sometimes in education, we, we, we are collegial, but we're not collaborative. We don't need each other. We're not really a team. And, and that mindset, I think, is something that you, you certainly bring to the table uh, as, as, a, as a high-level athlete. You, you know, understand the sacrificing of what I have to do for the better of the team, for the greater good, and how we produce those outcomes. Okay, exactly. I've got two questions left as we finish up here. Um, and the first one, these are both questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And here's the first one, and you certainly can take this in any direction that you wish. Uh, but generally speaking, and educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Uh, besides my barking new puppy, um, <laughs> um, I, I think what keeps me up at night is this idea that there are kids out there who trajectory um, solely depends on if we're willing to have the courage to do the right work. And that means come together and work together as collaborative teams in schools that operate as professional learning communities. And if we're, we're willing to treat every single kid as if they are our, our own kid. I, I, I used to be a, a high school counselor at a school for um, kids who were on probation. They were court involved. And those kids were as bright as any kids, but they, they had you know, different paths where they ended up with us. And unfortunately, you know, some of those students um, are no longer with us. And I always, and that, that keeps me up because I, this was before I knew about the PLC at work process, before I knew about, you know, a lot of things in terms of how we should work with kids and help kids. Um, and so that keeps me up because we've lost kids and, and we should not have, it was, that, that's on our watch. Um, and, but I think um, what keeps me up is just, are we willing to have the courage to um, sometimes push back against the system that was not designed for all kids? Right. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, when you, that experience uh, uh, as a counselor and in, involved with uh, students who have uh, the kind of lives and experiences that they've had, um, I can't imagine that didn't impact you and, and, and still to this day, yeah. um, students you think about. Um, last question, Brian, as we finish up, and it's a question about success. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and it's a simple question. And that is, if a, a random person stopped you on the street and said, Brian, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? I would tell them the story of my grandparents. I would say, start there. I would say, this is what happened. My definition of success is any individual who's willing to sacrifice to not only change the people in front of him or her, but is actually changing generations. And so it's not about you. It's about how are you going to make this world a better place? How are you going to make people more um, productive? And how are you going to help them believe that they can do this work on behalf of not just the children in front of them, not, not, on, not just not on behalf of their own kids, but on behalf of every single child who deserves it. And my question is, what child does not deserve it? Right. Your, uh, the story of your grandparents is incredibly inspiring and, and certainly, uh, obviously has such a huge influence on, on where you're the direction of your life, obviously, and, and certainly the, the legacy, uh, 
lives on and will live on through yeah. your children and the and the and the students that you've impacted and the schools that you've impacted in mm-hmm. all of your work. Listeners, uh, I would really, really encourage you to to follow Brian on whatever social media platform uh, you prefer. Uh, there's great information, uh, including finding access to past webinars and certainly access to upcoming events as well. So on Twitter, you can follow Brian. Uh, his Twitter handle is at bkbutler underscore Brian. On Instagram, it is at brianbutler8578. You can find Brian on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Uh, also, uh, Brian's website, brianbutler.info is the uh, is the website. And you can find Brian on YouTube. Brian, you are everywhere. <laughs> Listeners, I'll have, links, uh, I'll have links in the show notes so you can connect with Brian on one or more of those platforms. And, and, and if you're not familiar with Brian's work, I really would encourage you to do so. Uh, certainly, uh, I've learned a lot from, from listening to Brian and, and, and watching some of the webinars. And, and Brian, this has been a, uh, a wonderful conversation. Um, your passion is obvious. Your impact is widespread. And I really do appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thanks for doing this, man. Tom, thanks so much. I just wanted to say one thing before we leave. I just want to thank you because what you're doing to influence not just our profession, but generations is huge. And I really appreciate you what you do. And I, I listen to your podcast all the time and I learn and, and it just really puts more tools in my toolkit. So thanks so much. I appreciate that, Brian. Thanks. So uh, uh, thanks for saying that. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to spend a little time talking about common assessments, but more from the angle of the educators than the learners. There is, of course, a strong advocacy for the importance of utilizing common assessments, especially common formative assessments, to improve student achievement. Particularly within a professional learning community, the work of collaborative teams centers on examining the results of common assessments to determine next steps in instruction, the necessary interventions, and even to support extension should students show competence with the identified learning goals. Improving student learning is clearly at the heart of a PLC, but sometimes what gets lost is what a PLC actually stands for. A professional learning community is a community of professionals that learn together. Collective teacher efficacy, you know, our collective belief in our collective ability to lead all learners to high levels of intellectual performance, develops only as we lean on each other to become the very best versions of our professional selves. Some standards, outcomes, learning goals are essential, but they are challenging for students to learn and they're challenging for teachers to teach. None of us have the answers to everything. And as individuals, we never know more than the collective. So letting our guards down and truly working together is how we will become who we can potentially become professionally. Teaching, of course, can be a very private profession. We can work together in that we share the same place of employment, but we don't actually work together. I've never quite understood this isolationist mindset that some educators hold, but my only conclusion is that most who resist collaborative work are probably feeling insecure or vulnerable or both. Working, of course, within a collaborative team structure is a vulnerable position. Admitting that you don't know or that someone else might have a better idea is tough for some. The truth is, it's tough for everyone. Everyone takes pride in their work, and everyone wants to believe in the thoroughness of their own competence. So creating a collaborative culture is not that simple, but it is necessary. Yes, using common formative assessments, or CFAs, certainly gives us an opportunity to impact student learning through granular adjustments and timely interventions that advance students forward. But CFAs also get us talking to one another with a clear purpose. They get us talking to each other about sound assessment design. 
They get us talking to each other about the cognitive complexity of the learning, developing clear criteria, and maybe most importantly, they get us talking to one another about the interpretation of assessment evidence. And as a result of all of that, common formative assessments get us talking about next steps in learning. What do we collectively need to do to advance our students forward? Now, common summative assessments, or CSAs, if you will, can also do all of that, but typically summative assessment serves a much more holistic purpose and an overarching purpose. A summative assessment, of course, need not be restricted to a culminating event at the end of a unit or the learning cycle. Sometimes summative assessment is a moment where we look at the preponderance of evidence and make a determination in terms of the degree to which the student has met the learning goal. It doesn't have to be an epic event at the end of the learning. It can be, but it isn't exclusively that. Now, there are some who think they're excluded from the common part of the common assessment process since they're a singleton teacher, right? A teacher teaching a subject that no one else teaches. If you take a very narrow view of learning and only focus on subject-specific content, then that can seem to be true. But when you examine the outcomes or the standards of most subjects, you'll actually find a fair amount of overlap. Let's take, for example, the National Core Art Standards in the United States. And let's look at anchor standard number seven. Anchor standard number seven in the National Core Art Standards is to perceive and analyze artistic work. Now, of course, the National Core Art Standards were meant to unify all the different sort of arts programs like dance, media arts, music, theater, and visual arts. So obviously there can be a common approach to assessment there and common assessments can occur, common criteria, et cetera. So it's easy to focus on, when you look at perceive and analyze artistic work, it's easy to focus on the artistic work part of that standard and think, see Tom, there's nothing in common with other academic subjects like ELA, math, languages, social studies, science, etc. But if we actually focus on the analyze and perceive part of that standard, you actually can find a lot of overlap and opportunities for some commonality amongst many different subjects. So we perceive and analyze artistic work in, in our our performing arts or our fine arts classes. In social studies, we perceive and analyze different accounts of historical events. In science, we can perceive and analyze the potential results when, say, different variables are introduced into an experiment. In math, we can perceive and analyze different problem-solving strategies. English language arts perceive and analyze different sides of an argument. I mean, in English language arts, you can perceive and analyze artistic work because of you know, things like poetry or narrative writing, etc. So there's clear overlap. The bottom line is that if you want to magnify the differences between the subjects, you can and will. And if you want to find commonalities between them, you can and will. And I'm not saying you should force it where it's not there. But too often we think it's not there when it actually is. In fact, there's real advantage in cross-curricular conversations. I just feel like we spend so much time making sure people know how different we are and not enough time finding common ground where we can find it. Sometimes, and, and this is clearly my opinion as I have no research to back this up, but sometimes highlighting the differences is an opt-out tactic. Hey, Tom, that might work for ELA, but that won't work in math. Or we could never do that in science. Or you don't understand, Tom, we're languages, so it's not the same. Anyway, my point here is that when you look for authentic overlap and similarities to establish a focus for developing common assessments, you break down the silos within departments or across grade levels and even bring about these cross-curricular conversations. By purposefully identifying that overlap, 
you're going to land on more relevant transferable skills. You're going to land on 21st century skills that involve critical and creative thinking and innovation and all the things that we're really trying to move forward in our education systems. If we view factual content as the means and position cross-curricular skills or competencies as the end, we're definitely going to find the common and be able to grow a collaborative culture that provides the opportunity for some of the best professional conversations to occur. And they'll be authentic because you'll find the overlap. So remember, the common assessment process, whether formative or summative in its purpose, is not just about student learning. It's also about our own professional growth. But let's be clear. Our professional growth is only going to have an even bigger impact on student achievement because as we hone our craft and collectively contribute to each other's professional competence, the real winners in all of that will be our students. Assessment is, of course, the engine that drives these professional conversations. And the strategic use of common assessments really does create an atmosphere of togetherness that simply will not happen if we stay in our silos and constantly talk about how different we are. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com with questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have. Next week, my guest will be Hedrick Nichols. She's an educator, she's an author, and she's the host of the Small Bites podcast, which focuses on edu equity. So like this week, that will be our focus again next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I really do appreciate that. Have a great weekend, everyone.